I'm so tired, I haven't slept a wink. Well, show must go on. Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that represent European history like a microcosm. What's in store for you this episode? First of all, no random fact about Cologne, unfortunately. Based on my script, I can already see that I'm going to run over time on this episode. Please forgive me. But I have a small request to you. You know, I always do these companion posts for each episode. And I know that not everybody wants to look at them because maybe the podcast is enough for them and for their own imagination. But this episode is one of the few examples where I wish I would do this also with a video or with pictures. So for this episode, I ran around the whole city on three several days in heat waves and in lockdown times. And I took a ton of pictures and when I made this companion post of this episode, it didn't take me like a half an hour like it used to be before. No, it took me four hours to do that. So please check out my companion post of this episode. You want to see all those churches I'm talking about, I guess. You can find all of them on thehistoryofcologne.com. Thank you. But what can you expect? Well, the rise of Christianity in Cologne, but this time not embodied in the narration of a bishop's biography like Kunibert's from last time, but this time quite tangible in stone. We take a look at the first church buildings of Cologne that existed at that time and start right away with an adventurous incident in Cologne Cathedral. But listen for yourself. It was in 1959, on April the 10th. On this day, archaeologists were going about their work inside Cologne Cathedral, which had been damaged by the war. The necessary extensive reconstruction work on the church building had also been seen as an opportunity, despite its tragic nature. When would such an opportunity ever present itself again, to be able to examine the surroundings, in particular what is under the cathedral in the earth so extensively? In a few years the cathedral should be completely open to the public again, the chance would be over for that. Thus, in addition, to the repair work the excavation under the cathedral began. For this, the archaeologists started inside the church and carefully and prudently went deeper and deeper into the subsoil along the foundations of the Gothic cathedral. An important and laborious job. I myself do not know much about archaeology. The study of history and archaeology are two completely separate disciplines, though they have some overlap and, of course, each other depends on the other. But what I learned from some archaeology students was that it is not the digging in the earth per se that is exciting, but only the later work at the desk to clarify what has been excavated. The image of the profession that Indiana Jones conveys is therefore not entirely true. Fortunately, because who wants to mess with the Nazis of the Third Reich? But sometimes, even with real non-fictional archaeologists, cinematic events happen during their work. 
but back to the beginning. So, in April 1959, another workday began like the others before for the team of archaeologists. The careful digging, brushing, shoveling must surely have echoed throughout the large church. But then it happened. A sound which was not so familiar every day. A great crashing sound shook the interior of the cathedral. Could the cathedral still collapse after all these years? After all, the Second World War had dropped 70 bombs on the church building. 14 of them were heavy aerial bombs, which were usually enough to cause entire blocks of houses to collapse. But as the dust settled around the archaeologists, they saw that something had not collapsed on top of them. It was that the floor had opened up at a point in the cathedral below them. The head of the excavation, Otto Doppelfeld, was amazed when he climbed into the depths. Every archaeologist dreams of making a great find once in his life, like finding Troy or Atlantis. Mr. Doppelfeld had already discovered the Dionysus mosaic a few dozen meters away, south of the cathedral in 1941, which we had often discussed here in this podcast. But now he found the second great find of his career. Here under the floor of the 13th century Gothic cathedral, he found a crypt. Immediately it was obvious this crypt built out of trachyte slabs is older than the current cathedral. Even older than the previous cathedral, which was built as a predecessor in the 9th century. It did not take long to realize that a Frankish find had been encountered here. Two princely tombs from the 6th century came to light. It was especially nice that the two graves were completely intact. Thus, a rich treasure of finds was found. Jewelry, gold, everyday objects such as cups, a water bottle, glass bottles with perfume and even a bucket were found among them. Sure, we had already talked about the early Frankish burial methods in an earlier episode, but the striking thing besides the rich grave goods, of course, is the location of these two tombs. Well, that over their mortal remains there would be the later foundations of two important cathedrals of that time, the buried or the people who buried them there could not know. But even if the northern city wall was almost within reach, so one was already here at this point almost outside the Roman city of Cologne, one was just here at this point still inside the city walls. And this is really something special, no matter if Christian or pagan, Roman, Frankish or Germanic. We all know too well that people in the 6th century still buried their people outside the city. This can only mean one thing, that there was an exception for that. Something special must have already stood here. An early church could have stood here. A bishop's church. Who were the deceased actually? Well, as rich as the grave goods were, after 1400 years, only the teeth of the two deceased were left. But teeth can tell us a lot. On the one hand, they belonged to a woman who had died at the age of 28. The other teeth found belonged to a boy who must have been no older than six years. The grave goods were so rich that they are still unparalleled as far as Frankish graves from this period are concerned. The woman's clothing was richly decorated, almost all of her jewelry was made out of pure gold, as was her costume. Even a purse had been included with her. This also makes it practical to place the grave in time. 
there are coins with the faces of Ostrogothic rulers on them, who ruled Italy at this time in the first half of the 6th century. This must have been a very noble and rich woman who was buried here. To this day, people speculate on a noble woman named Visigarde. Visigarde had been a Frankish queen who had once married a Frankish king, in this case, Teuderich I. And no, not to be confused with Teuderich II and the blood column in St. Gerion. I told you, Merovingian names are confusing. However, according to the sources, Visigarde died shortly after the wedding with Teuderich. So the theory arose that she was buried here in the crypt. Until today, we don't have a definite proof. It is only based on circumstantial evidence that this woman had to be Visigarde. Her age at the time of death, the rich grave goods, which went far beyond the fortunes of local nobles of the Franks, the temporal and special circumstances speak for this thesis. The final proof, however, is still missing that this really was the Frankish queen from the 6th century. But enough now, we don't want to talk too long about graves again. Nevertheless, these graves under today's Cologne Cathedral bring us to the next topic. Was there already a church here in the 6th century where once Cologne Cathedral would be today? The existence of these graves, which were preferably built under such churches, is in any case a possible indication for it. Between 1946, so one year after the Second World War ended, and the year 1997, large areas below the present Cologne Cathedral were archaeologically explored. Nowadays, this archaeological zone is in large parts open to the public and, in my opinion, extremely well presented. To get there, an entrance was specially built next to the cathedral, which then provides underground access through the middle of a foundation of the cathedral. Just walking through one of the mighty tower foundations of the southern cathedral tower is tremendous. And free of charge, by the way. The ticket office comes only afterwards. The excavations reveal the following. Similar to the house of the rich Cologne citizen with the Dionysus mosaic in close proximity, Everything here had been burnt down in the year 355 with the raid by the Franks. This is testified by the contemporary leveled ground full of rubble. A small building with an apse was probably built on it in late Roman times, like the early 5th century. What an apse is, you surely know enough from an early episode, I hope. The dimensions of the building were 25 meters and 11 meters. In the further 5th century, the building was extended. It will have been this building in which the presumed Frankish queen Visigarde was buried. If one follows this assumption, the church would have been used as a Christian memorial building for the 6th century, similar to St. Severin in front of the Roman city wall in the south. However, the fact that this building had a use as a Christian Episcopal Church is archaeologically provable at least from the second half of the 6th century. A new building with a length of 50 meters was rebuilt here, and the baptistry stood only a few meters away to the east. I do not want to go further into this baptistry building, we have already done that a few episodes before. Inside the church building, we see early medieval elements of a church. A key-shaped so-called ambo, a raised pulpit for preaching for the priest, together with stairs, were present here. In the time of Cunibert as Bishop of Cologne, 
the church was clearly extended to the west, so in the direction of today's Hohestrasse, the former Cardo Maximus. In a contemporary source from the year 640 by Cunibert's former ward, King Sigibert III, this is mentioned, also that the bishop's church was dedicated to St. Peter. I will try to obtain as much freely available info materials as possible on these construction phases of the early church here. There are also some videos on YouTube that are very good for this. The only drawback is that they are voiced in German. But with my explanations so far, you should be able to understand the animations shown there quite well. I will simply write timestamps underneath what is shown at which point in the video. Otherwise, write to me and I try to help. So much for the 8th century bishop's church that stood on the later side of today's Cologne Cathedral. These two princely tombs under the presumed bishop's church suggest one thing. The church, as an institution, was an important bearer of spiritual and secular power in Cologne from early on. Where can we already see beginnings of this? Here in the 7th and 8th century, the time period we already ventured into in the last episode about Kunibert. Well, first of all, I have to confess one thing. I have bitten off more than I can chew. There aren't that many sources from that period on this topic. A lot of it is just theory and conjecture. Nevertheless, I'll try, helped of course by general historical developments that apply to Europe north the Alps as a whole. I will always try to break these down to the Cologne level. But long story short, let's start. Directly north and at that time still outside the city walls of Cologne was the church of Saint Clement, founded by Bishop Cunibert in the 7th century. It was then, as it is today, only a 10-minute walk from the bishop's church or the site of today's Cologne Cathedral. Like most churches of the time, it had been built on a Roman burial ground. In size, however, it was more like a chapel, the first building. Bishop Cunibert then had it expanded into a church during his tenure as bishop where he was then also buried and whereupon the church was renamed in his honor. Archaeological excavations took place here between the years 1978 and 1993. However, here the classification of the finds is extremely difficult, even almost impossible. Individual building phases, as in the case of the Episcopal Church under the cathedral, are not so easy to recognize. The present Romanesque church building shows that here, too, old building material was diligently reused in each case. Tombstones from the 7th and 11th century were used as structural elements in a church building. All this makes it difficult to give more precise information about measurements and sizes of earlier buildings. Perhaps a little legend about the church will compensate you for this. Probably a once pagan Frankish place of worship had existed here before. Wise as early Christianity was, one had not dismissed all practices and customs of the pagans as simple heresy, but had adopted them into the Christian world of faith. Perhaps this was also the case with this pagan shrine. Within this church, even to this day, there is a fountain in the crypt there. Miraculous things were said about this well. This well is 70 meters deep. According to a common legend, 
the children come from the stork and are laid at night to the parents in front of their house door. This is a legend that is known all over the world. Well, in Cologne this is different, and of course here in Cologne we have to be an exception again. Here the children are not brought by the stork, no, they come from this very well. If a woman had a desire to have children, she went to the church of St. Cunibert. The bottom of this well was different from the normal wells. Not cold, slippery, damp and dark. No, here was a bright and beautiful garden that invited to play. Here at the bottom of Cunibert's well, St. Mary personally cared for the souls of all the children who had not yet been born. When a woman came and drank from the well, the Virgin Mother naturally noticed. She then went through the garden and chose the right child for the woman. But if you think that the water made the woman pregnant, you are wrong. Well, this form of the legend also exists, but I find this version which I tell here better. Quasi as a pre-modern click and collect, the woman in question had to be patient after drinking from the well then nine months. Once the time was up, all she had to do was return to the well in St. Cunibert and she could receive the child there, instantly. And please, this is a legend, don't ask me how exactly this should have happened. Really, I have no idea. But so it is then also said in the vernacular from the time about this well. In Cologne dialect, which is not even German, this is really the Cologne dialect, and even the normal speaking German who is not from Cologne cannot understand the word I just said. But translated, I just said, From the old well in St. Cunibert, we all come without shirt and pants. Until well into the 19th century, the well in the church was accessible. This also had practical reasons. Until well into this time, the inhabitants of Cologne depended on such draw wells for their water supply. From 1850, however, this changed. Water pipes were laid more and more in Cologne, and perhaps many no longer believed in the miraculous properties of this well, maybe? From then on, the well was filled with rubble and closed. However, since 1930, the fountain is accessible again. I think. It's a nice little story. But back to the ground of facts. Here, north of the city wall, the church building built by Cunibert in the 7th century becomes the center of a new city district. Free from the narrowness of the city walls which borders this district to the south, fishermen and boatmen settle. The district must have had a very rural character at that time, However, the church you will find there today is a new building from the early 13th century and quite a few parts of the building were victims of the Second World War. But that doesn't make the church any less admirable. I hope that by the time this episode is published, I will have managed to visit the church once. If so, you can find photos in the companion post of this episode or on my social media pages. Links to it as always in the show notes. The fact that Cunibert built this church outside the city in the 7th century, albeit in the immediate vicinity of the city wall, is perhaps also due to another circumstance. Not only that there is more space here, it must have been safer here as well in that time. 
And there is another reason. Christianity had been a hitherto urban phenomenon, north of the Alps, to say the least. Even long after Ludwig's conversion to Christianity around 500, large parts in the countryside remained faithful to their old pagan cults. But this changed fundamentally in the late 7th century and early 8th century. Missionaries went out into the villages and hamlets of the regions and proselytized. In doing so, they also looked beyond their own horizons. Especially Cunibert had made the missionary work of the surrounding regions around Cologne one of his priorities. He had extended his missionary efforts as far as the Saxons and Frisians in what is now the German state of Lower Saxony and the North Sea coast of the Netherlands, then as now an enormously large geographical area, especially at a time when there were no motor vehicles as well as highways. Especially in his missionary work among the Frisians, Cunibert received loyal royal support. King Dagobert I, his friend and patron, bequeathed to him and thus to the Diocese of Cologne a fortress in Utrecht together with a church. Nowadays Utrecht is a city in the Netherlands and a great place to visit. This was to serve the Diocese of Cologne as a base for the missionization of the Frisians. That there was a fortress needed in Utrecht to do some missionary work tells you how the Frisians reacted to the attempts to be converted, so to speak. But from this donation, despite some setbacks, the bishopric of Utrecht was to be formed in the long term, which was to be under the supervision of the later archbishopric of Cologne. But I will not go into that now because what an archbishopric is, and so on, we will come to that topic another time. Very soon. For us, this should only mean at this moment, Cologne was still on the eastern edge of the Frankish Empire, if you look at a map at this time. But it was the starting point for the Christian missionary work of the Frankish Empire to the northeast and the east, like areas far beyond the Rhine. In order to better integrate the people subjugated there by the Franks, the Frankish royal court in particular promoted Christian missionary work as an additional secular means of securing rule in the newly conquered territories. The Merovingian Frankish kings and the church worked hand in hand for mutual benefit. Helpful were also the numerous still preserved Roman long distance roads that led from Cologne to the respective still pagan regions. This made Cologne one of the most important cities in the Frankish Empire. However, the missionization of the people in what is today the Netherlands and Northern Germany, as I said, was not always successful and straightforward. As said before, the attempts to conquer new territory and to Christianize the people there often went hand in hand at the same time. One may hardly believe it from today's point of view, since today's Bishops are all mostly old men in robes, but in those times, bishops put on armor with a sword and went to war together with the Frankish kings. The bishop of Cologne, Hildegard, who served as a bishop of Cologne about a hundred years later after Cunibert, paid for this with his life. He died on a campaign against the Saxons in the year 753. A similar fate befell his fellow bishop, 
Boniface, less than a year later, who traveled to the pagan Frisians to continue his missionary work at the age of 81, which was truly very old age at that time. Perhaps he really strove to be killed in the process to be considered as a Christian martyr. If this was indeed the case, he got his wish. Just as he was about to confirm some already converted Christian Frisians early one morning in what is now the Dutch province of Friesland, he was murdered on the way there on the banks of the Born River by pagan Frisians who disapproved of his activities. Boniface himself is worth a separate episode. He was certainly the most important Christian missionary of his time. He was instrumental in expanding the ecclesiastical structures in the broad area in the east of the Frankish Empire, largely in what is now Germany. He is interesting for Cologne because he tried unsuccessfully to become the Bishop of Cologne in the year 746. At that time he was already Bishop of Mainz and his opponents feared too great an accumulation of power if he would have both offices. So that didn't work out. Especially the already mentioned Saxons in the northeast and the Frisians in the north of Cologne resisted Christianization with all means, really with all means. This was to succeed only to a man in the late 8th century, in an extremely ruthless way, whom you all know, Charlemagne. Oh, I, I don't know, why don't you call him Charles the Great? I, I have no idea, because... But let's return to Cologne. Many church buildings were built in Cologne during this period, or rather in some cases, we are quite sure that they must have been built during this period. Especially Kunibert, as a bishop is mentioned in his sources, as someone who pushed the construction of churches. Let's take a look at these churches in Cologne of the late 7th and early 8th century. First of all, to illustrate this better, I will update my interactive Google map that I made a few months ago, accordingly with all the locations here I mention. Because one thing stands out in this development, churches existed at Kunibet's time in the 7th century both now inside and outside the then still existing Roman city wall. The first churches were mostly built as burial churches outside of the city, since according to Roman law that was still valid in Frankish times in for quite some time, the dead could only be buried outside the city. Such burial churches were consequently built outside the city walls. The Church of St. Severin is an example, which we have already encountered a few times in our podcast. It is located south of the city near the Rhine. Since we've already covered it before, just in brief, St. Severin continued to be used by the Frankish nobility as a burial church, and corresponding grave finds have been archaeologically secured here. Then we have the church of St. Gerion, also outside the city walls in the northwest, and we have already discussed it several times. During Cunibert's tenure as bishop, it was already around 300 years old, it had an imposing oval central building with an apse in the east and a large porch with an atrium in the west. This church is still immense today and contemporaries consider it the most important church in the eastern part of the Frankish Empire. No wonder that King Clodwig and 100 years later King Theuderich II 
had their homage as king of all the Franks paid here and not somewhere else in the east of the Frankish Empire. The interior of St. Gerion was richly decorated at that time of Cunibert. Tunisian and Belgian marble were used in the interior. Mosaics and valuable stones such as the volcanic stones, red porphyry from Egypt and green porphyry from Greece were also present. Whoever had built the church in the late 4th century, still in Roman times so to speak, must have been incredibly rich. Between St. Gerion in the northwest and St. Cunibert in the novel city wall was another church with late Roman origins, the Church of St. Ursula. And as I said, look on my interactive map to see where every church is so you get not confused. At the time of Cunibert in the 7th century, St. Ursula did not yet bear this name. The church was simply called To the Holy Virgins. We had already talked about this church in brief and why the name of St. Ursula was only added a few centuries later. Also built on a former Roman burial ground, the early history of the church is also difficult to grasp archaeologically. The search for relics for the bones of the martyrs was too greedy and extensive in the Middle Ages, carried out by the Cologne citizens, in order to sell them throughout Europe as a sought-after commodity. Thus, the bones of the mostly still buried from Roman times were thought to be the slaughtered 11,000 virgins. In this way, much of what had been in the ground from early times was lost because people just kept on digging everything, everything up and destroying what was in the ground. It was a big business that made Cologne rich in the High Middle Ages. The beginnings of the construction may have been modest. 30 meters long and 10 meters wide may have been a first burial church. Then in the 6th century, under Frankish rule already, this building was replaced by a new building with three naves. Shortly after, a new floor was laid inside the building with screed. In addition, an amble was installed. We already know this preacher's pulpit from the already mentioned bishop's church. In the time of Cunibert, a noble woman named Vivencia was buried here in the year 639. She was the daughter of Pippin the Elder, an important Frankish official and nobleman at the royal court of the Merovingians. At Vivencia's burial, something miraculous is said to have happened. Twice she was buried in the ground under the church, and twice her body was thrown out of the ground. This was seen as a divine sign that probably none other than Saint Ursula and her virgin companions themselves should be buried here in the earth. To get around this, Vivencia was instead buried in a sarcophagus, set on four pillars above the ground. Sometimes I really like ruthless pragmatism. Following the path outside the city walls, we come to an area in the southwest of Cologne that has only recently been repopulated here in the 7th century. In the ruins of a former Roman estate, which was probably abandoned by the Romans in the 4th century, Frankish settlers had now settled and built a farm. Where people live, they also die at some point. In the second half of the 7th century, a church was built in the associated cemetery. In terms of its shape, like almost all church buildings of that time, it was of modest dimensions and almost completely rectangular. However, it had two peculiarities. 
at the end, there was not a semicircular apse, as was often so common at that time, as you might have noticed, but a rectangular chancel was added to it. This was probably a propriety church, so a church that was not built by the local priesthood itself under the rule of Bishop Kunibet, but by non-clerical private individuals, the people who lived in this area. In this case, certainly by the Frankish family living here. As I said, the church structures in that time were not as fixed as it would be in later times like the High or Late Middle Ages. What also supports this assumption is that the church was not strictly oriented east-west to Jerusalem. It was, and also its 10th century early Romanesque successor building, is oriented in northwest-southeast, which is very unusual for church buildings in that time. This church would later be named St. Pantaleon. And I really hope I pronounced this name right, because I can't even in German. I have no idea why. I personally have a very special relationship with St. Pantaleon, because this church is my baptismal church. But church buildings were not only built outside the city walls. The first traces of new church buildings can also be found in the city from the 7th century onwards. This is because in the late Merovingian period, the late 7th century, burial rites changed. From now on, Christians also buried their dead inside the city. And in Cologne at that time, the majority of the city's population already belonged to this religion. Even in death, people wanted to remain close to the community. In Cologne, this is particularly evident in two new churches. For the first time ever in the history of the city, people were buried inside the city walls in these two places. The first of this kind was St. Cecilian or St. Cecilia in English. We have already met this church in the last episode. It is the place of the legend where Bishop Kunibert made the non-ringing Saufang bell that was hidden in mud ring again after he blessed it. It is known that here at this place near the today's Neumarkt or Newmarket, the biggest central square in Cologne, at times of Roman Cologne, a thermal bath plant must have stood here. However, this thermal bath plant had probably been destroyed by fire before the Franks took over in the mid of the 5th century. Archaeological excavations between 2003 and 2005 have uncovered further construction phases, which however can no longer be dead exactly. It is likely that the church building was erected in the 7th century from remains of reused Roman building materials. Unfortunately, there is no more to say for this period. The present church building was built as a successor building between 1130 and 1160 as a church for a ladies' convent. And what a ladies' convent is, I will come to later. The other church inside of Cologne was St. Columba, and here, unfortunately, the past tense is very appropriate, because the church no longer exists today. But first the facts. St. Columba was located only about 100 meters west of the Cardo Maximus, today's Hohestrasse. During archaeological excavations between 1974 and 1976, it was discovered that the church stood on the ruins of a Roman residential area, 
which of course should not surprise us given its central location close to the Cardo Maximus. Already in late Roman times, there was a building with an apse used as a church here. In Frankish times, a Frankish church building of modest dimensions stood here on its foundations. The building was only 3 by 4 meters in size. Although the exact dating is difficult here as well, historical research is certain that the origins of this church must date back to Frankish times. Since the church was dedicated to Holy Columba of Zenz, this is very likely. Under the Merovingian rulers, the martyr was highly venerated. In the written sources, the church building is documented since the 9th century. Saint Columba continued to be expanded over the centuries, like all churches in Cologne, and was replaced by a new building in the later High Middle Ages. Almost completely destroyed during World War II, the ruins stood for the people of Cologne as a memorial to the horror of the war launched by Nazi Germany. After the war, a small chapel was built in the ruins of the church. Then in 2007, the new Archbishop's Art Museum of Cologne was opened on this site. And I personally think that this museum building has simply succeeded in the best possible way. The museum building manages to merge the ruins of the elements almost seamlessly with the new building with a modern design, with an outer facade of burnt brick. After all, the medieval church destroyed during the war had also been built from the same building materials. For me, the museum building is really an example of how old and new can be harmoniously combined. The chapel from the post-war period was also integrated into the museum. These were two examples for me about churches within the city of Cologne. But there would be a third church. It is Sankt Maria im Kapitol, or in English Saint Mary in the Capitol. Perhaps one or the other here is still aware that there is also a Capitol Hill in Cologne, very close to the Ubia Monument at the southern end of Rome Cologne, today directly adjacent to the Heumarkt, the Haymarket. Here in Roman times stood a pagan temple dedicated to the Roman deities Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva. Here, building on the ruins of the Roman temple, a Christian church was erected in the late 7th century. The church area at that time still included the foundation walls of the Roman temple district of 80 by 70 meters. And you know what? I won't tell you any more about this point. Judging by the length of this episode, I'm sure your attention span isn't quite 100% anyway. And who could blame you after so much input about church buildings? But don't worry, next time we will meet St. Mary in the capital again. Then we'll discuss the life and work of a woman named Plectrudis, who died in Cologne in 725. This church and Plectrudis are connected to each other. And with Plectrudis' biography, we can tell the events of that time in an exemplary way. This also means that we will take again a look at the Frankish imperial level. In the Merovingian Frankish Empire in the 8th century, a massive change is coming. At its end, it would no longer be the Merovingians at the head of the empire, but the clan into which Plectrudis had once been married. The ancestors of Charles the Great. Oh, Charlemagne, how you call him in English. And of course, 
our cologne is up to its neck in this development. But wait a minute. Where is the monasticism I announced, some will say. What about the monastery system in Cologne? I had promised to talk about that too. Well, that was what I meant at the beginning of this episode. I've taken a bite I can't chew. I am absolutely no church historian. And I do all this in my spare time, or my research. I'm afraid... I need some more time to gather the necessary information. I really ask for your understanding. In the past, I would have just gone to a library and browsed until I found the appropriate book or information. Not only that the early Middle Ages is a period poor in written sources, no, the existing lockdown by the corona pandemic at the time of this recording makes it even more difficult for me to get the necessary literature that has evaluated the historical sources that are available. I know, of course, already roughly why the monastic system developed in the early Middle Ages in Europe, but I myself still lack the local reference to Cologne, which I would obviously like to work in here. Only one thing. In the 7th century, Bishop Kunibert founded, among other things, the Margaretenkloster, or in English, Margaret's Monastery which was located near today's Cologne Cathedral to the west, and thus also directly on the edge of the northern Roman city wall. It existed for 1100 years and served more or less as a retirement home for aged church servants. When revolutionary France conquered Cologne around the year 1800 and ruled it for two decades, it was dissolved and the associated buildings were demolished. Today, among other things, there is a nice cafe in the immediate vicinity with the best view of the main portal of the Cologne Cathedral. But that's it for now with my knowledge. I have ordered a book for this topic. I hope that it arrives soon by mail with me and also really contains the information that I am looking for. Only so much is said. Almost all churches described here in this episode should have later monasteries or monastery-like institutions. So maybe I should rather push the whole topic to the high middle ages, where then a real monastery foundation boom occurred. I'll take a look. Please forgive me for this. Church history is exciting. But I just never covered it much in my studies. Well, at least not early medieval church history. Only that of the late 20th century. And I'm really aware that this episode is already a tremendous length, but it struck me during the course of this podcast that I would like to do this here in this form in every episode, as well starting now, naming the literature for this episode I used. As in most episodes about Cologne in the Frankish period, written in German of course, is a book translated is called Colonia, City of the Franks by Karl Dietmar and Markus Trier, this book served me as a reliable source. The two authors have especially briefly elaborated on the church buildings mentioned here. As further assistance served me the publications of the promotion association Romanische Kirchen Köln, or in English translated the Romanic Churches of Cologne, whose member I am also since recent times. I guess I collect promotional memberships for historical topics like some people collect Pokemon cards these days. 
also by Karl Dietzmar, the historical city guide about medieval Cologne was a very helpful tool to me. I'm also happy to put the exact details of my sources in the companion post of this episode on my homepage. Link to it, as always, in the show notes. Well, then we are done for this time. My throat is really dry and have to drink some water. Thank you very much for listening. I really had some kind of writer's block with this episode, in parts, because I had to restructure my whole episode plan. I hope it was still interesting enough for you. It was a rather very architectural episode this time, which also needed some imagination. I hope the pictures in a companion post of all these churches help you with that, as well as my interactive Google Maps map. But don't worry, it will get more exciting next time. Because next time, we will dive back into political intrigue and power politics when we talk about Plectodus, probably the most powerful woman and person in the Frankish Empire of the early 8th century. She competed with her stepson for power in the Frankish Empire. Unfortunately, this stepson was the later grandfather of Charles the Great or Charlemagne. So it is clear which of the two got the short end of the stick. But I don't want to spoil too much for now. Thanks again for listening. Feel free to recommend me. Thanks also to my patrons for your additional support. And especially I want to thank Demetrio and Odo Runge, I hope I pronounce your names correctly, for joining my Patreon team. Thank you very much for your additional support. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>